Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio. Just Google it. Search for the Northern Maine Landman, and you'll hear it. You're hearing this today on December 10th, 2016, and it is... Mostly sunny, high near 17. Wind chill values as low as minus 4. Northwest wind 9 to 11 miles an hour with gusts as high as 25 miles an hour. Now you get 17 above and 25 mile an hour winds. It's it's cold. It's dangerously cold. Saturday night, partly cloudy with a low around 8. Wind chill values as low as 1 below. West wind 5 to 7 miles an hour. Sunday, mostly sunny, high near 22, west wind around 6 miles an hour. Sunday night, change of snow after 1 a.m., mostly cloudy, low around 12, calm wind, chance of precipitation 30%. Monday, snow high near 24, east wind 5 to 9 miles an hour, chance of precipitation 80%. Monday night, Snow likely before 1 a.m., then a chance of snow showers after 1 a.m. Cloudy, low around 16, chance of precipitation 70%. We're going to have a nor'easter. And the Maine Weather Service out of Caribou is already thumping the drum and uh, telling us that this is going to be a significant event. So from 1 a.m. Sunday, to 1 a.m. Monday, 
it's going to snow. And they say it's going to snow a lot. It's too soon to predict their accumulations. But we're going to have a 24-hour event. And uh, it's time to get ready. You know, clean up all the stuff around so you don't run over with a snowblower. And uh, get ready for this storm. It's a, they may declare it to be a nor'easter. We've got an east wind, 5 to 9 miles an hour. That's not particularly high. But they say that the snow is going to be heaviest along the coast, and then uh, it's going to continue inland. It's too soon to predict the actual track, but Maine is going to get some snow. This thing started in in Oregon, and it's marching across the country, and they've got, of course, they've got pictures of people that were unprepared for the conditions and did not listen to the radio and the cautions, and they took off in there. And their little cars with ball tires and spin around the tractor trailer, slam on the brakes, zigzag knife, go down over the bank into the media. Next thing you know, the interstate is shut off. Interstate 90 out in, out in the Midwest uh, is, uh, is shut right now in places. Interstate 90 goes from uh, Massachusetts to Washington State, just like Route 2. Route 2... Uh, goes all the way across the country. They had a TV show years ago about Route 66 went most of the way across the country. The even-numbered roads go east and west for the most part, and the odd-numbered roads go north and south for the most part. So Route 90 goes all the way across the country, and Route 70 in Florida goes all the way across the country. A little piece of of uh, trivia there. Route 95 goes from you know from Maine all the way down to Florida, mostly along the East Coast. And as you go back, it, it, the numbers go backwards. So you got 90, 95, 93, 91, 89. 89 goes from uh, Massachusetts up to uh, uh, up the. the The town in Vermont where the university is, Bennington? No, it's not Bennington. Uh, it's not Brattleboro. Anyway, up there in the northwest corner of Vermont. So Even numbers generally east-west, odd numbers generally north-south. And they number them from west to east. So 95 is the most... Most the easterly one is unlikely to be a 97. So, Donald Trump is raising Cain and having a fine time doing it. He hasn't had a press conference lately. What he does, he goes on these thank you tours. And uh, he's going to the states that everybody said he couldn't win. And there's you know, a bunch of states that he said... He can win this, and uh, in that state, they're traditionally uh, more conservative. And then you got the states where where he uh, was unlikely to win. It's just certainly California was going to go for for Hillary. There's just no doubt about it. But uh, 
And he didn't campaign in California. He wrote California off. California is broke. It's the land of of brush fires, mudslides, earthquakes, and and, uh, riots. It's just, it's their way of life. It's a tradition. And it's it's the way that they operate operate their state. So, he's going down to Louisiana, though. Louisiana has a rule that if, in order to get elected, you've got to get 50% of the vote. So, they've got two senatorial candidates, one conservative and one progressive. And they're going to have a runoff uh, right soon. I think it's next week. I don't, have, I don't know the exact date. He's going to go down and campaign for the for the uh, the conservative candidate, a liberty candidate, constitutional candidate. And then they got the progressives that they can't help themselves. Progressive is a word that they they adopted to to uh, describe socialists. And you know, socialism has failed everywhere it's been tried in the whole world. And socialism leads to communism. Now, I've said before that a communist is just a socialist in a hurry. And you got, you know, Stalin killed millions of people, and Pol Pot in Cambodia killed hundreds of thousands of people. They don't have that many million over there. But Mao, Chairman Mao in Red China killed millions of people. And uh, when Stalin killed millions of people in Ukraine, he simply starved them to death. He shut off the food, shut off the fuel, let them die. And millions did. You know, it was cheaper than going in there and conquering them. He just shut off the fuel and the food and they'll die. Every, every place in the world is at risk for this. At varying amounts of risk. Oops. Oh, Phil, hope it's still on. But anyway, they uh, the world is at risk for this because the world is getting more and more unstable. You know, you've got a terrorist with a knife can run a vehicle into a crowd of people jump out and stab the survivors and chase after the other ones. And he's going to die. I mean, eventually, unless you get a, a bunch of uh, courageous students that decide they've had enough of this and they go after this terrorist, he's going to die. He knew that when he left home that morning. He's going to go do this. And he was there, get on the Internet, and they listened to one of the radical Muslim terrorists on the internet and they think, gee, it's a good idea. Let's go kill some people, especially Americans. They can do it here, they can do it in in uh, Europe. Europe has committed suicide. They have let in millions of fighting age Muslims from Iraq, from Syria, Various other countries just let them in. They take them across the Bosporus in boats from Syria to 
Greece. They land in Greece, and the Greeks feed them. And they say, you can't stay here. You've got to go up to Germany because Angela Merkel uh, really uh, wants you to come to Germany. And they got lots of blondes up there with blue eyes. And uh, so all these young Muslim terrorists march. They literally walk from, from Greece up through Europe. And they're putting up fences along the roads. They herd them up these roads. No, you can't come into our country. You've got to go up to, to Germany and Sweden. They, they really like it up there, and they've got lots of blondes with blue eyes. So they march up there, and, of course, the in- inevitable result is is uh, not conducive to the well-being of the blondes and blue eyes. But Angela Merkel, who was born to communist parents, raised as a communist, thinks like a communist, and East Germany is where she was raised. And then they, Ronald Reagan and the German government at the time tore down the wall. Ronald Reagan went over there and stood there near the Brandenburg Gate and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And they did. The Germans tore it down. With hammers and axes and crowbars and pipes, they tore down the wall. And the East German soldiers didn't kill them. Now, in order to to run a communist country, you have to keep the people in there by fencing them in. They have to have a good fence. And they put, you know, can't check every bit of the fence every 24 hours a day, so they put mines along there. So if somebody goes between the two fences... They're going to step on a mine and get blown up, killed. And if they get their leg blown off, you know, they're not going to take care of them. They're going to let them die right there. That's how communism works. Now, some communist countries are on an island, like Cuba. Now, Fidel Castro died in bed peacefully. Unlike all the Cubans he tortured to death who died in screaming agony. Because that's what it takes to run a communist country. You have to have that threat all the time in order to control the people. People have no rights. Cuba has existed that way since 1959. I was going through flight training down there in Florida. You know, nobody knew what was going to happen. So they... uh, they had anti-aircraft guns on the base where I was going through flight training, Pensacola. Pensacola is a very important uh, base for many reasons, not just for not just for uh, flight training, which is their primary mission at the moment, but they also have the Blue Angels are, are stationed there. Blue Angels exist to uh, still patriotism and and motivation for flight students. And I've told the story several times, no need to repeat it today, but one of the things that attracted me to naval aviation was the, seeing the Blue Angels fly by. And I thought, gee, you know, I would rather be a Navy pilot than drive this manure spreader. I'm going to find out how to do that. 
And people say, ah, you'll never be able to do that. Well, maybe not. But it did that. No need to belabor that story again. But uh, it's possible. And you have to look at what's possible. Donald Trump looked at what's possible. And he says, you know, I can do this. I can make America great again. Not all by myself. Just get government out of the way. Just get government out of the way. And that's, you know, that's what impedes us. You got the Environmental Protection Agency has shut down lots of businesses. I worked in the mill at Lincoln. I worked in a few mills over the years. Started out in Bucksport, 1974, in the spring. Started out in Bucksport. And uh, went to work there. In the first three weeks I was there, I uh, stayed at the uh, at the Prouty Tavern, Jed Prouty, Jed Prouty Tavern. It was it was end of April, approximately first part of May. I forget exactly, but it was springtime, beautiful Bucksport, looking out. I got a room for a cheap rate at the third on the third floor. My family was going to come up as soon as the school year was over. So. Uh, Looked out the window there, and I had the window open on the third floor, and they had a, a bar there across the road. It's called the Sale Inn. Technically, it was a restaurant, and it was illegal to have bars in much of Maine at that time. You had to. It could be a restaurant. You could serve drinks in a restaurant, but you couldn't serve drinks in a bar. So the uh, <clears throat> so I looked, window was open at about nine o'clock one night. And there was a merchant ship in at Bucksport, and they offloading cargo. It wasn't a tanker; it was a merchant ship. And they were offloading cargo and unloading cargo, and, and all of a sudden, there's a bunch of gunfire. Bam, 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 bam. So I went to the window, peeked around. I mean, I'm no stranger to gunfire. So I looked, and these people come running out of the sail in, just bailing, going around the corner, getting undercover. And what happened is uh, this guy's wife liked to play around, and, and she went in the sail in, and she was playing around with the sailors in there, and his husband showed up and started shooting the sailors. <laughs> he wasn't a very good shot. He wounded two of them, and the rest of them bailed out the back door and, and Everybody kind of fled the bar. They had another big investigation. I don't know whatever happened about it. I didn't follow it to its conclusion, but uh, that happened. I thought, boy, this is kind of a wild town. Nothing like that had happened in Bucksport for years. I just happened to be there when it happened. But uh, these things happen from time to time. People abuse drugs and alcohol and... and, uh, usually concludes poorly. People go off the road and kill other people, and now they want to legalize marijuana. And the, the old power station that down in uh, down on the coast, 
has been shut down. They had a coal-fired plant, and there weren't any oil pipelines at the time, no natural gas pipelines, and coal was the least expensive and most efficient way to generate electricity aside from hydro. So that station has been shut down, and the town is going to take it over because the people that own the property can't generate income, so they've declared bankruptcy, and they're going to stop paying their taxes. But the guy that owns it would like to open up a marijuana uh, manufacturing facility, sell marijuana, and build a 50-room hotel on the site. Now, it's a, it's a decent-looking old traditional brick building, the power station. So that would be the, the factory or the, or the grow site. You'd sell marijuana, and it'd be a big tourist attraction. I mean, Colorado has found that marijuana is a big tourist attraction. People drive to Colorado and get stoned. Have a fine time doing it. Those people that like, you know, drunks and druggies or uh, really like to take advantage of their opportunities. So Colorado has found that uh, that draws in a lot of tourists. Well, tourists want to bring some home with them. They get off the plane when they get home and get arrested and go to jail. Say, well, gee, I bought this legally. You can't have it in this state, fella. So... We're going through a transition here. Part of the transition is a market uptick in debts in our country. The expected age, the expected lifespan of middle-class America is, has declined for the first time in many years because people are, are dying of drug overdoses and accidents. I, I know an undertaker, mortician, whatever you want to call him, who uh, says, you know, when I prepare a body for viewing, he says, I have never, ever found a body that didn't have alcohol in him if he died of accidental death. Now, these are people that that uh, fall off ladders while well, you know, and I've all whatever kind of accident it is, some mostly motor vehicle accidents. But the motor vehicle accident events are usually, uh, you know, you can tell which ones they are. I'd go to the scene of a wreck. I don't call them accidents. They're not accidents. They're wrecks. I'd go to the scene of a wreck, pick up a patient back when I was an EMT, and I'd go to headed into the hospital, and I have a 57-year-old male and describe his condition, and I would say ETOH. Well, the hospital knows what ETOH is. That's alcohol, ethyl alcohol. And they'd know, okay, we got a drunk coming in. Or I'd say I have a 55-year-old female, respiratory distress, and I would say 55-year-old female smoker in respiratory distress. Well, this person probably has COPD that she's brought on herself, and she walks around in Walmart with an oxygen tank. And some some people just get illnesses 
in the course of living. But most illnesses are caused by the person. And now we've got we've got this Zeta illness in Florida now. And this month we've had four births of of uh, of babies who have microencephaly, which is Latin for tiny brain. They they're born with essentially no brain. They've all they've got is the cerebral cortex right down there, just above the spine, a little tiny piece of the brain. And all the brain that that regulates uh, emotion, ability, thought, the ability to think and plan and speak uh, are not there. But the respiratory section, just above the 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 base of the brain at the top of the spine the spinal cord emerges from the brain down into the into your neck. That part regulates your breathing and your bodily functions. You know, breathing and heartbeat. It's pretty much go together. Nancy Caroline wrote a great book about emergency medicine. She talked about the the uh, autonomic nervous system explaining it she had a way a great great doctor great surgeon and she wrote the book called medicine in the streets and all of the all of the emts back in that era read that book and they just they simply referred to it as streets and it's and it's what emts called ditch medicine medicine in the ditch beside the road that's where you first encounter your patient, especially when they didn't wear a seatbelt. You know, they're thrown from the vehicle, and there they are, lying there in the ditch. You you cope with what exists. You make things better than they would have been. I was an EMT for a number of years. I tend to get involved in what I, what I uh, undertake. And as an EMT, I started out, I wanted to take the EMT course, because we, as a family, went wilderness canoe camping. You don't pick up the phone and dial 911. Back then, there was no cell phone anyway. But we went camping. We went down the Allagash. We went down the St. John. We went down the Saguenay River in Quebec, which is out there. That's, that's quite a trip if you ever want to do it. And been on down all the major rivers in Maine and lots of the smaller streams. And I wanted to be able to take care of my family efficiently. I had first aid in the military, and I was around corpsmen in Vietnam and Army medics. And I, so there was a, it was just an occasional uh, encounter that I had. I was, I had basic first aid, of course, and I had CPR when that came along. But I wanted to know more. So I signed up for the EMT course, and they, you know, put in the course, and you had to affiliate with some agency. I didn't. I just wanted to take the course, and they, but they wouldn't let me just take the course for background knowledge. I had to, I had to join something. Well, I couldn't join the fire department because they had a rule that if you join the fire department, you have to participate in firemen's field days and marching parades. Well, I had marched at my last parade. 
I was done with marching and parades. And I didn't want to go play water ball at the, at the field day. So they could fire hoses and they try to chase this ball up, up to the enemy's goal line, the other fire department. Everybody falls down, is rolling around in the mud, hits each other with high-pressure hoses. And I didn't think this was a this was a particularly enjoyable thing to do. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So I went to work for for the local county search and rescue. And uh, my intent was to go out, find lost people, and be able to to uh, treat them uh, for whatever condition they, they were in. A lot of people go out hunting and they get lost, or they have a medical emergency and fall down, hurt themselves, or have a heart attack or whatever. Nobody... You know, they don't show up for supper. They send out a search party, and I would go do that. Well, they also ran the local emergency uh, medical service, ambulances. They had three ambulances, and they had 24-hour coverage, all volunteer. Nobody got paid. So I signed up with them, and I would take a shift. You know, they would, they like you to take a, at least one shift a week, which is eight hours sometimes 12 hours. So I did that. And I became more and more active. I wound up uh, being elected to the board of directors. And they, uh, they needed to get a new ambulance. The old Cadillac, which was a refurbished hearse, which is how what ambulances used to be, you know, they go out to the scene of a wreck, and the, the hearse would pick up the patient and uh, all patients, either take them to the funeral home or they take them to the hospital, as the case may be. There was no treatment. Hospital treatment began at the hospital. But after Vietnam, all these combat medics came back, and they said, geez, you know, people are surviving the wreck and dying on the way to the hospital. We got to we got to change this. We got to operate the way we did in Vietnam because if you can make it through that golden hour, and right after the initial incident, you've got a really good chance of making it long term. So I wound up taking the intermediate level course. We could start IVs and intubate people and keep them going until they get to the hospital and they put them in the emergency room and get them stabilized and take them to the intensive care unit and wheel them into surgery either that night or in the morning to deal with whatever injuries they have that need to be repaired. And the survival rate in our country took a huge jump. And the life expectancy took a huge jump. And then, uh, and now, of course, our life expectancy is, is, uh, dropping because of suicidal people. You know, people take drugs and they die. You know, when the first time they first time they smoke a cigarette, they head down that road. Don't smoke. It's bad for you. But people smoke because they think it's cool. And lots of kids, uh, you know, Kids have to leave school property, so they'll have a lunch, and then they'll walk off school property to the local smoking uh, site and 
they'll smoke, and then they go back to school after lunch. And first thing in the morning, you see them gathered around, smoking, just before the school bell rings and they all go in the building. Various ages. you got kids in junior high smoking. And, of course, that toughens up your your windpipe. So you don't have a coffin fit. First time a kid takes a drag on a cigarette, he has a coffin fit. It's it's a, it's an insult to your system. And they say, well, here, try this joint. So they have a marijuana cigarette. And then next thing you know, they say, well, gee, try this other thing. Here, try this. And it's methamphetamine. We have, there are recipes on the internet. You can learn how to make methamphetamine, and you can do it in a two-liter bottle. Go through the procedure. It's dangerous. The bottle can explode. The chemicals are dangerous. uh, I don't know how to make it. I never looked it up. But just from reading the newspaper, you know, it's production of methamphetamine is, is dangerous but it results in these crystals that uh, people use to get high. And you don't know how powerful they are. You don't know how to measure it. And you can overdose. And overdose deaths in our country are increasing rapidly. Now, the biggest cash crop in Afghanistan is... Opium. Now, people take opium to feel better, and they know they're going to die. I mean, they should know. They can get away with it for a little while, but they want more and more opium or heroin. And they will die of it unless they choose to stop taking it. Now, it's not easy. Going through withdrawal is is not easy, but you know, that's how you get out of it. You have to do this if you want to survive. Otherwise, you're going to die. It's that simple. We imported labor to produce the the transcontinental railroad. Our country was prosperous and growing. And in order to to create the transcontinental railroad, we had to import labor. And a good source of labor was Chinese people because economic opportunity in China was negligible. They had a really really huge population of essentially unemployed people. So we brought them over here by the the, uh, boatload to the Golden Land. That's what they called North America. And they came in here and they went to work on the railroads. And they wanted to save it. They sent much of the income that they made, they sent back to China. And they get letters from their families that they had gotten this money and <clears throat> they had become prosperous and they were able to build a house instead of renting. And and they could take over the neighbor's rice paddy and, and thing, things were good. And it's amazing to me that a Chinese laborer could send the money 
that he had earned in North America back to China, and it would actually get there. But it did. And then it did injured. Couldn't work. They had, they had burying money. A lot of cowboys back in the West. They had a five-shot Colt revolver, and they kept the hammer down on the empty chamber. And in the empty chamber was a folded-up $10 bill, burying money. So if this cowboy died in a stampede or if he got shot or whatever, they could hire somebody to build him a box and bury him on Boot Hill. Well, the Chinese had a similar plan. Each one of these Chinese laborers had a stash of of money that if he died, they could send his body back to China. They'd pack him in a box and send him to China. They'd seal up the box with tar because they didn't want to have to smell all the bodies going back to China. And my suspicion is that they would take him out to sea and dump him over the side. But maybe they did make it back to China where they were buried by their families on the on the family property. They had they had family plots where they would bury their ancestors right on their property. And we have a lot of family plots in Maine. Getting back to my original premise, you know, taking drugs is a bad thing. It is not good for you. There are certain things in certain situations. Uh, My my cousin's son, which would make me a great uncle, my great uh, my great nephew is an anesthesiologist. Good at what he does. He teaches anesthesiology. And anesthesiology is is to put people to sleep and that they will not feel pain during a surgical procedure. And then there's an antidote to to bring them I mean bring them out of uh the anesthesia and people recover. So there there are good uses for for drugs in a controlled situation. And they had you know opium was used to relieve pain. And the old timers called it laudanum. And when people got cancer, you know, cancer was not curable. It was a death sentence. And toward the end, people would take laudanum to deaden the pain. It was opium. It was just a brand name for opium. In Afghanistan, the largest single crop, cash crop, is opium. Opium poppies. Same thing throughout most of uh, Southeast Asia. Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia have opium plots. Now, they used to have big opium plantations, and the British government really encouraged uh, opium in China because it made the Chinese population easy to control. Because when you're stoned, you're kind of stupid. So the British let most of China be ruled by by small drug lords. And they kept Hong Kong essentially drug-free. 
Hong Kong was controlled by Great Britain until about 20 years ago. I don't know the date. But uh, it was a drug. It was a drug uh, economy, drug system. And it was corrupt. It was just about as corrupt as it could possibly be. Now, they would take the opium from Afghanistan and they would bring it to Albania. And the Albanians would refine the opium into heroin. You know, it has, this has to be done somewhere. And, and some of it is in Central America, but the largest single source of heroin is, is Albania, which is just south of Serbia and west of Greece and, and east of Italy. And it's a coastal country. They've got good infrastructure for moving materials. So, so they uh, they produce heroin. The Serbs don't like drugs. Serbia was a Christian country, and they had the Serbian Orthodox Church, which is like the Russian Orthodox, the Syrian Orthodox, the uh, country east of Turkey slips my mind for the moment. But there are lots of Orthodox churches similar to the Roman Catholic Church, which was headquartered in Rome. But there were the, the seven great churches, Greek Orthodox, uh, and the other country just east of Turkey. A bunch of those folks came over to our country uh, after after uh, World War One, and uh, their names, like many Eastern European countries, you can tell what country they're from by the end of their name, and their names were all Aegean. Uh, they, they ended in Aegean, so you could tell that they're from that country. Serbs did not want the Albanians to be running their drug operation in Serbia. Now, Kosovo province is a province in Serbia. It has been for a thousand years or more. And the Albanians were there. Well, the Persians came across what is now Turkey, and invaded Greece years ago. And King Leonidas was told by the Persians, if you will put down your weapons, we will let you and 99 people that you pick go free and you can leave. King Leonidas said, Molan Labe, which is come and get them. We're not putting down our weapons, and you're not going to take them. Oh, and lobby. You see it on flags. You see it on bumper stickers. It was a statement of defiance. Like when the Germans demanded that our troops surrounded at the Battle of the Bulge surrender, our reply to the Germans was nuts. One word. I said, nuts. 
you must be crazy to think we're going to surrender. And they didn't. And they defeated the Germans. Well, King Leonidas was killed. But Greece was saved. And the Persians had to turn around and go home because they, they had been defeated. They could not take and hold Greece. A thousand years later, in the 1100s, the Muslims decided they wanted to take Europe. So they came across Greece, and they came into the southern part of Serbia. And in Kosovo province, there is a big plain, like our plains out west. And the Serbs call it uh, a campo. It stands for holy field, a holy camp. And uh, there, the Serbian prince, Lazar, stopped the Persians, the Muslim hordes. And they were outnumbered. But thousands of Serbian knights led by Prince Lazar stopped the Muslim hordes on a campo, Kosovo, and they call it the Holy Field. And they were they were being defeated, and Prince Lazar and a bunch of Serbian knights charged through the lines right into the into the Emir's tent, and he was the the leader of the Muslims, and they killed him. And then, of course, they were surrounded, and they were defeated, and they were all killed. The people that went in there with Prince Lazar. And they stopped the Muslim hordes. They made it happen further than they did the previous time. But now, Europe has surrendered. Europe has given up, and they're allowing the Muslims between the ages of 18 and 35, no women, no kids, maybe a few, but very few, young men, Muslims, are taking over Europe. They're in England, they're in France, they're in all the European countries, except Spain. Spain learned their lesson when the Muslims came came charging up into Spain and eventually... You know, they try to, they, of course, what they're doing is they're torturing and killing Spaniards and beheading them. Well, Spain turned the tables on them. And they tried to convert them to Christians. And that didn't work. So the only way to get rid of them was to kill them. So the Spanish did. They had the Spanish Inquisition. And they say that that's a, that's a black mark on Christianity. But what they did is they turned the tables on the Muslims, and they treated the Muslims just exactly the way that the Muslims treated the Christians. So uh, that's what they did. And it was a bad time for both sides. 
War is never never pleasant, but we've got a situation right now in the Philippines. The Philippines have got lots of Muslims, and they're a bunch of drug peddlers, as they are all over. Now, they don't use drugs. They don't use drugs. And if they, if a Muslim gets caught using drugs, even having a beer in Afghanistan, they will punish that guy. They might kill him outright. They often do. But they do not tolerate drug abuse. Because they understand that it's bad. Long term, it's never a good thing. And they solve the problem by killing them. Well, the president of the Philippines right now in the last few months, has killed 4,500 Muslim drug runners. This is the only way to get rid of them. You know, you can't ask, what are you going to do? Ask them to leave? Please stop doing this? Well, that'll work for once in a while. But basically, that's the alternative. And uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but in the last few months, they've killed 4,500 of these drug runners. And if they keep it up, there won't be any drugs, or very, very few. Now, you're going to get a guy that, that, just like we did here during Prohibition, you got homebrew, bathtub gin, whatever you want to call it. And you're always going to have somebody that's got a, a two-liter jug in Holton running a meth lab. They call a two-liter jug a meth lab, okay? It's not, not really a lab, but that's... That's the name they've given to it, and uh, we've had about 150 meth labs raided in Maine this year. And every time we take one out of out of uh, production and put this guy in jail for 20 years, uh, they uh, like playing whack-a-mole because when you when you Knock one down the hole, the other one pops up in the other hole. And we've got suicidal people in in the world and in Maine that want to take drugs and get high. But the life expectancy of Americans took a big jump when they started the emergency medical technician and the paramedic programs in our country. They had these these medics that came home from Vietnam and you get somebody that stepped on a landmine or you got crash victims from a helicopter shot down. And I'm real familiar with that topic. Enough said about that for this moment. But you got these people that are badly hurt. And if you can get them into a, into a facility within one hour alive, they have a really good chance of survival. And we've got troops coming home from the sandbox, as the troops call it, Afghanistan and Iraq. And now Syria, we've got troops in Syria. We've got troops in Iraq. We've got troops other places where they're not well publicized, but they're there. You know, And my job, one of my jobs in the Navy was to fly SEALs around. Take them in, drop them off. When they're ready to leave, go back in, pick them up. 
Inserting seals was usually relatively non-eventful, but extracting seals was always a real zoo because they had a way of really irritating the locals. <laughs> and seals, all seal reunions, the sea wolves are invited to their reunions because they like to hear the stories from back in the beginning when the seals first started operating that way. The SEAL program was started by John F. Kennedy. He said, look, we've got to have some special forces. And he he got the SEALs established. He got the Green Berets established. They wanted to have a cadre of special forces, well-trained, multiple skill sets. And you've got communications guys who are really good EMTs. And you've got really good EMTs who are good at foreign languages. You've got guys that are good at foreign languages and political science. These are well-educated people. Most Special Forces guys have been in the service 12 years or more. You don't take a guy right out of boot camp and stick him in, in SEAL training. They didn't used to. They try to take experienced people who had good judgment and good, good operational experience and put them through SEAL training. Now, We've got some young guys who are motivated, and they've seen movies. You know what happened. And Lone Survivor is uh, is about a SEAL team in Afghanistan, and only one guy survived. And the reason he survived was that one of the Afghan tribes took him in as a guest, and in the Muslim faith. If you've got a, a person that's lost in the desert or something, they will take you in, and they'll feed you, and they'll get you back to health and uh, and send you on your way because you're not going to be a Muslim. But they, they have this hospitality ethic that's really one of the honorable things about Islam. But they also have a lot of really evil stuff. Islam is a tyrannical political system masquerading as a religious faith. Yeah, that'll raise somebody's tackles, hackles. But, uh, you know, if you look at it and read the stuff, it's there. This is what they believe. Now, Everybody that comes out of a of a Muslim society is not somebody that wants to behead you, but it's in the it's in their instruction book. It's in the Quran. This is what they want for you, and this is what they want for me. And this is why we have students who are refugees from tyrannical political systems in Africa, in Middle East, come to this country by the thousands brought in by Barack Hussein Obama. Barack Hussein Obama was educated in Muslim schools in Indonesia. Then his mother came to Hawaii and she died and he was raised by his grandparents who were communists. His father was a communist in uh, in Kenya, 
and his brother is brought to the U.S. on a trip back to Kenya. He lives in a hut in Kenya. And he went to Occidental College in California as a foreign student. And his religion was Muslim. And he got a scholarship from Occidental College to go there. Now, Occidental means Eastern or Middle Eastern. And this college was primarily for foreign students to be educated here. And they were nearly all Muslims. And one of his roommates was from Pakistan. So Barack Hussein Obama, by the way, at the time he was named Barry Sotero, because his father, uh, stepfather in Indonesia, was a communist, and that's why his that's why his mother uh, married a guy in Indonesia, and Barack went to an Indonesian schools as a Muslim, educated as a Muslim. So he came to a Muslim college in California called Occidental College, registered as a foreign student uh, and a Muslim, and. He, his roommate was a guy named Shandu, last name is Shandu, from Pakistan. Now, Barack Hussein Obama went to Pakistan for training for six months. Now, he never had a U.S. passport. And diligent searches of every single county in the United States of America, all 38,000, no, 3,800 counties, in our country, there is no legal name change from Barry Sotero to Barack Hussein Obama. So when he went to Pakistan, he had a passport. You have to have a passport to go to Pakistan. He was never issued a passport from the United States. Barack Hussein Obama uses a Social Security number from a guy that died the year that he was supposedly born in Hawaii. But his grandmother says he was born in Kenya. She attended the birth. But his mother got tired of being one of four wives in Kenya, so she went to Indonesia with baby Barack, who attended college as Barry Sotero. All this, we knew this eight years ago when he was elected. We knew this. It's all written down. When he went to Pakistan for six months for training with the Shandu brothers, because both brothers were here being educated at Occidental College, so he went to Pakistan with the Shandu brothers. Now, where did this passport come from? When he went to Pakistan as a student for six months, There was no such country as Kenya. It was British East Africa. And if you got digging, you'd probably find a passport for Barack Hussein Obama from British British East Africa. That's probably where his passport came from, because he never had an American passport. But he got elected to be president of the United States. When people knew this, I don't have to look this up. I studied it in great detail to learn about this person. 
So then, then, of course, there's a whole raft of information about Michelle Obama. And, and her mom. She, her mom lives in the White House. She's kind of the nursemaid for the Barack Hussein Obama daughters. <laughs> and all this stuff is written down. But people say, oh, geez, you know, that's, that's conspiracy talk. That's conspiracy theory. That's history. It's all written down. It's all documented. This guy's going to walk away scot-free after what he's done to our country. And they're going to let it happen. So this is straight a little way this this uh, this cold Saturday in northern Maine. But and this is our history. And it needs to be recorded. This is recorded. And every every single word that I've mentioned today is... Uh, is recorded. And the country I couldn't think of a few minutes ago was Armenia. We had a lot of... Now, this the Armenian Orthodox Church was a Christian church. Still is. And lots of Armenians and Yazidis are trapped on a hill in northern Iraq where the four countries come together. And it's Mount Sinjar. And they're being slaughtered. Christians. But Barack Hussein Obama will not let them into our country. He wants to bring in the Muslims instead. And this is what we get. January 20th. Got to look forward to that date. I don't know where he's going to go. He says he's going to stay right in Washington. He probably hopes to be able to influence things, and maybe he will. We'll see. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network at Conscience of Maine. Brought to you today by the on TalkShoe. Scrolling up here. This is Saturday, December 10th, when you're hearing this. Northern Maine Landman Show on the Talk Shoe Radio Network. Clean up this weekend. This is going to be a beautiful, sunshiny weekend, Saturday and Sunday both. Get ready, because old man winter's going to get up and stretch and catch up, starting at 1 o'clock in the morning. It's going to go for 24 hours, Sunday night into Monday night. Monday is not going to be a good day to travel in Maine, so get your shopping done beforehand. Be safe. God bless.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.